Hey, welcome to Short Fine Legs, the cricket podcast that churns out episodes like Dean Elgar scores his runs. They don't come out very fast, and they're not always pretty, but man are they effective. And that's just one of the reasons why he deserves the test captaincy of the Proteas. Have I stretched that metaphor too far? Have I lost my areas? Well, yeah, maybe I have. My name is Daniel Gallen. I'm a freelance journo from Josie, now residing in London, where lockdown is very different to Mzanzi. But at least we can take solace in the fact that there are those with their hands on the leaves of power who, like their counterparts in South Africa, abide by a different set of rules and are accountable to no one but themselves. We're in partnership this week, as always, with the absolute champions at Raider Media. Now, if the show is like the methodical accumulator, then the rest of the stable is a dream team of dashing stroke makers and aggressive fast bowlers. Is that metaphor stretched enough? Just go check them out. Today's chat is with a legend of South African domestic cricket and a man who didn't get nearly enough love in national colours. We spoke about his rise through the ranks, cementing his standing at the Titans, learning to cope with criticism, coal pack contracts, titles won, and of course, that drop catch at the 2015 World Cup semi-final. It's Mr. Farhan Faji Behadin. So I'm speaking with a man who has represented South Africa in 59 ODIs, 38 T20Is, has cemented his status as an icon in the Republic with 114 first-class matches, 222 list day matches, and 175 domestic T20 matches. A man whose Twitter bio reads, Pain heals, chicks dick scars, glory lasts forever. It is my good pleasure to welcome to the show, Farhan Behadin. I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, lucky, thanks. Uh, my first question is, do you mind if I call you Fudgy throughout this conversation? By the end of it, we'll be firm friends, I promise you. Please call me Fudgy. I introduce myself as Fudgy on every occasion. It's just, it's just easier. When did you get, when did you get Fudgy? Was that, is that a nickname that you've had your whole life? 1998, the rugby training at Westerford High School in down in Cape Town. We had an outside coach come in and uh, he was reading names of a roster to be to see who was present at the practice. Uh, and he went through the uh, list of names: Daniel, Mark, Alex, Tristan. He got to my name and he struggled to pro- he struggled to pronounce it. And uh, he struggled. He was kind of booming and iron and then. <laughs> The first word that popped into his head that started with an F was Fudge, and he, he dubbed me Fudge. And uh, since 1998, the next day at school, all my mates started calling me Fudge or Fudgy, and it's stuck ever since. What did you think of it? Did you fight it at first? Um, were you into it? No, I mean, I didn't really care. I mean, I didn't know it was going to stick for so long. I thought, oh, this guy just one day at training, but then... I mean, it's. I mean, it's. It's. It's just stuck. He actually got hold of me the other day. I commented on a post on a, from a friend from Facebook, and uh, he actually commented. He see, he replies because I I haven't spoken to him since 1998, and he and he he actually apologizes for not pronouncing my name. But I mean, yeah. I mean, 22, 20, 22 years later, it's it's firmly stuck. That's so funny. Um, I've, I've got a nickname, but I'm not going to tell you. Um, and I fought it. I, I, I couldn't stand it when, they, when my friends first gave it to me. And there's nothing that cements a nickname like you fighting against it. So I'm glad you, I'm glad you were cool with it. Uh, well, 
Yeah. Well, when I went to varsity, the, I mean, the varsity guys, I mean, just a little bit outside, I mean, Innocence was, uh, it was an innocent nickname, I mean, I was, when I got to varsity, they started calling me Fudgebacker, so I mean, that <laughs> didn't take too well. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that, that is an inevitable next step, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've got to ask you, how's lockdown treating you? I mean, besides accelerating your, your facial hair? Yeah, no, lockdown is, um, lockdown has been okay, you know. Uh, uh, fortunately, I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a gamer, um, so it's actually been quite fun. I mean, I've I've finished quite a lot of games over the last two, uh, three, four weeks. Um, but yeah, look, I can't train. I can't go to the gym. Can't obviously eat balls. I mean, that's a bit of a bummer. Um, I can't run. I mean, South Africa's on a hard lockdown, so you're not allowed to leave your your premises. Mm. Um, so that is a bit tough. I can't open up the lungs and go for it down on the street or um but other than that cooking biking gaming i mean all of the brine that's i mean all all of those things what have you baked what's what's been the fudgy special i've done a pear sponge cake or sponge cake as my as my mercy would would suggest um and uh i've done a spinach and feta quiche i've done uh top deck chunky uh, biscuits or cookies. Um, done a banana bread. Yeah, yeah, the banana bread's a classic one. I've also done one of those. Yeah, I mean, it's standard. I mean, I gave into the banana bread like uh, story, but. Uh, Have you made a sourdough yet? I haven't made a sourdough yet. I don't think I'm interested in a sourdough. That that um, is that is next level stuff. Once you make a sourdough, you are officially under <laughs> lockdown. That is that. <laughs> it's a marker. I've been brying a lot. So okay. I'll tell you that. Uh, nice. Uh, cool, man. So you recently hung up your boots and gloves for the Titans after an absolutely stellar career where you established yourself as a legend, having committed 14 years to the franchise. Can you just sum up what the organization means to you? Any particular highlights you'd like to, you'd like to draw on? I mean, how, could you maybe encapsulate your life in Centurion over the last 14 years for the Titans? Yes. How long is your pod? How long is your podcast? <laughs> we got we got lots of time. We are, we we're all under <laughs> lockdown. There's nowhere else to go. <laughs> um. Yeah. It's been it's been pretty special. You know, I took a punt when I was a young kid, 22 years old, from Cape Town, moving up to the northern parts of the country, Pretoria, Blue Bull country, quite Afrikaans. I'm a city kid from Cape Town, very English. Um. Used to the beach and the mountains and 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 and. And it's just quite an adjustment coming uh, to Pretoria or moving to Pretoria. But, um, yeah, it, was, it means everything to me. It's given me every opportunity uh, that I that I currently have and have had over the last 14 years playing for the Titans. Um, it, it means so much to uh, my playing career. It means, it means a lot to my family. It means a lot to me. Um, I've, I've, I mean, I've, I've gotten to travel the world as a result of playing for the team because Titans is a stepping stone to playing for South Africa. Um, I got to meet some really good friends, lifelong friends. I got to learn from the best in the business, playing the sport that I love. And then we were very successful as a team, as a franchise team. We, uh, we've, as a franchise, in our since it became franchise cricket in South Africa, we've won 18 trophies. And I've been a part of 16 of them. So, I mean, that from a, from a success point of view and a, trof- and a championship winning point of view, the 16 trophies is, um, is definitely our. Like we went through very successful phases 
in through the Titans history, and um, I'm very proud to be a part of that. If you could maybe single out one moment that that just kind of maybe encapsulated the entire thing, one one match, one innings, one bowling performance. One time where you were sitting in the dressing room looking at your teammates. I mean, it's 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 so it's maybe unfair to ask for you to pick one moment of a of a fourteen year career. But it, what is the first one that comes to mind? Well, I'll I'll give you two that stands out really out that uh, thoroughly stands out. Well, three. The first one is in my second year when I was this young kid. I was on peanuts. I was earning. <laughs> Uh, so 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 little cash, but I was doing what I loved, and and that was all that all that matters. Fourteen years ago, and in my second year, your first year, I, I was 14, I, I won a trophy in my first year. In, played in the, played most of the games, but in my second year, in a, in a fifth, you know, in in the one day cup final at SuperSport Park against the Warriors. Back then, we experimented with forty five over cricket, and. Um, it was a 45 over final and I was batting with Albie Morkel and I wasn't a bad performer. I was just young. I was kind of learning my trade, learning the skill set, learning how, what it means to play tough cricket and from Martin van Jaasveld, Pierre Joubert and Paul Harris, Dale Stein, Albie Morkel, Alfonso Thomas. Those are the guys that I grew up playing with and... Uh, and then in the in in that second year in a final we were two hundred and two hundred and ten after about forty overs we had about five overs left I was batting on the other end with Albie Morkel and Albie Morkel and I was like look Albie I'll just get one and then you can obviously take it on and he actually gave me the confidence he said something to me that was really um, profound at that moment he's like you have the ability to clear the ropes and you have the ability to take these bowlers down and he gave me that confidence and. We ended up getting um, 275 at the end of uh, the 45th over. So we ended up scoring about 65 runs in like five overs. I ended on 59, not out of 30 balls. Um, and their, their bowling attack was Johan Boerta, who played for South Africa. Um, Rafi Teranus played for South Africa. And Robert Atsorbe. Um They had a, quite a stellar as uh, de Bruyne, who played for South Africa. So that was the first time that, that gave me the confidence to... Um, to kind of like, I cemented my place a little bit. I showed them what they, I've, I've kind of repaid the faith of the Titans giving me a contract. And that kind of, that moment stands out mm. very early on. And getting and, the comp- uh, and getting that endorsement from a guy like, like LB Morkel, who, as you say, is, is renowned for, for clearing the ropes, for him to tell you in the middle that, that you can do that. I mean, you know, nothing instills confidence like having a, a person who's so good at what, what they do telling you that you can also do it. Yeah, that affirmation was uh, was immense, and it kind of throughout my whole career. If there was one person, I'm kind of watching the the the, the documentary, The Last Dance with Michael Jordan, that's mm. on Netflix at the moment, and he says he's he wasn't half the player that he is without Scotty Pippen. And uh, I felt throughout my career growing up, I'm I'm, I'm not half the player that I am because of Albie Morkel, because he was always batting just below me or just ahead of me. And we always batted in the crunch times, and I learned so much from him. But that one particular moment in my second year gave me that confidence. One other moment that stands out is when we played, when we won three T20 titles in a row. And then in the final, I mean, we just had the team. I mean, our team was a bomb side. Quentin Ducock, Aidan Markram, 
you had Avid Villiers, you had myself, Albie Morkel, Chris uh, Morris, David Visa, Shamsi, Lunking, Giri, Junior, Dala, like all international <laughs> players. And we knew when we rocked to the ground that we had this. And uh, those those two moments stand out, like, from what I remember. Mm. Well, it, you know, a lot of people talk about, like, uh, it's... I once asked um, Gavin Hunt, the, the football manager, what it means to, like, you know, what's the secret to being a good a, a good coach? And he said, just having good players. Because it, it's not just that good players play well. It's that good players are, are kind of like these electrons or like the, these, these atoms that kind of buzz amongst each other that that just being next to greatness makes you play so much better part, being part of a team like that i mean did you feel like unbeatable at times did you feel like no matter what happens one of these guys one of us is, is going to pull us out 100 percent. we um we a few years back when we won those three titles Barcher came in, came on board so we went through a bit of a lean period uh so two three Five years ago, uh, we only won one trophy out of two years, and that. Um, but we were in a building phase, and at the end of that three-year cycle, the third year, we ended up winning two trophies, and uh, there was a kind of a period where we started looking at the culture of our team and how we can rebuild that. But by then, the players weren't as strong, they weren't as uh, experienced, they didn't get enough match, match or, or game time at the highest level, well, the provincial level or the franchise level to kind of put in solid performances week in and week out. And I think uh, after that uh, period where we were lean, we went to a period where we were very strong and uh, you can rely on those players. We had Quentin de Kock moving from the Lions to the Titans, we had Chris Morris coming from the Lions to the Titans. We had uh, Debray Shamsi, who was now the national T. Uh, well, Odi Aspinner. He, um, he he actually moved from the from the Dolphins to us as a quite a shrewd by Junior Dala. I mean, <laughs> the emergence of Adrian Markram. I mean, the the list goes on. I mean, myself, I was an old horse. <laughs> Ab was an old horse. Dale Stein, Albie Morkel, David Visser. I mean, I'm I'm naming all international players. I mean, yeah. I'd, I'd our team was immensely strong uh, over the uh, uh, over most of my career. The last year or two, it's been a bit of another rebuilding phase, and no doubt, in a couple of years' time, we'll be we'll, we'll be pushing for honors again strongly. Mm. But you're not quite done playing yet, are you? You've signed a coal pack contract to go play for Durham in the north of England. You do know it's freezing up there, right? I do know it's freezing. <laughs> um, yeah, look, my, it's always my, it was always my dream to kind of finish off my career in the UK. It's always had such, such history and uh, such, a, such a love for the game in the UK that, I mean, I wanted to be a part of that. I've been over to the UK on many occasions. I've played club cricket on five different occasions for five different teams all over the UK in the Northeast. I have played in the Northeast before. I've played in the Northwest in the, in the Lancashire Leagues. Um, and I've played, I've been, I've toured with the national side. So I've been very fortunate to experience cricket there. And I've always wanted to, to play in the UK and play for the, for the, for the club. Uh, in any club, I mean, I, I, I would have been happy to have played for any club. Unfortunately, Durham came knocking with a, quite a, a rich heritage of cricket and, and, and some awesome players. So, yeah, that is kind of fulfilling one of my, one of my goals I set out when I was a young boy. So, yeah. Do you know what's going to happen now with this lockdown? I mean, um, 
we spoke off the record, well, before we started recording, rather, that, that the Durham players have been furloughed. There's talk that the entire season may be scrapped. Uh, what was the nature of your contract? I mean, were you was it a, a single-year contract? Do you know that if you'll be playing next year, if, if this season is scrapped? I mean, do you know what the future, you know, what's going to happen? Well, I've signed a two-year deal with the option for the third. Okay. Um, so... I know Goldback is a contentious issue in the UK mm. and uh, they're looking to scrap it at the end of the season. And by doing that, they might increase the amount of overseas players for the next season. Although a lot of things are up in the air. I mean, I think the Goldback discussion is again up for uh, is again up for discussion because the season has been so badly affected by something that is out of everybody's control and... I'm not sure exactly how they're going to tackle that callback decision, but uh, yeah, I mean, have you been Durham, in, been, have you been in touch with Durham um, while yeah, this has been going quite, on? Yeah, quite quite often with the director of cricket, Marcus North, and the coach James Franklin, and they've indicated if the callback in um, uh, falls away, they're looking to sign me. They're looking to just change the details of my contract to the second overseas. Right. Okay. So, oh, yeah. so I guess that, that that gives you some security. And I want to talk about Colpax. And as you said, obviously Colpax are not just a sensitive issue in, in in England. They're an extremely sensitive issue in South Africa for South African yeah. fans. As someone who committed so much of your life to domestic cricket in South Africa at the peak of your powers, and I'm sure there there could have been stages where you decided, you know what, I'm not making the national side regularly. I can just go play Colpax and earn more money earning pounds. I mean, what was your thoughts on Colpax, say, five years ago? Um, <laughs> I actually got offered a few deals about three years ago. Mm. Um, so 2016, actually. And uh, not 2000, 2017. And uh, that back then, I was still playing in the national side. And uh, while the... The thing is, you got to do the calculations and do the numbers and playing for the national side and playing a bit in South Africa and going to ICC events if you were to um, do the books, uh, you know, from a financial point of view, you actually earn more money staying and not taking a callback deal. Depending on your callback deal, I mean, some players could obviously get paid more than others, but on the, on the, on based on an on a average callback deal, kind of worked it out with some rough numbers. That was my consideration, and I obviously love playing for South Africa. Mm. I, I love playing for South Africa. It was a boy dream watching John T. Rhodes grow up and Ansi and Big Mac, Sean Pollock and Jacques Callas and Gibbs. So, whoever made that decision back in the day, I had no issues with it. Um, they were free to make their own choices. And mainly it comes around about just hanging around, being, on the, being, a, being a fringe player in the, in the national side. That is why the guys chose choose callback. It's the certainty of playing. Um, everybody wants to play and, 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 and win trophies and win games. And, and, and to not play and to be on the edge, on the fringes of a national team and tour the whole time and watch your years go by is a, is a, is a tough thing. But you know, a lot of the criticism around callbacks is that Yes, okay, maybe we, we don't lose the likes of A.B. de Villiers and, and, and Dale Stain, for example, to Colpax, but losing guys like Duane Olifier and, and Simon Harmer doesn't necessarily weaken the protest side, you can argue that case or not, but it, but it certainly weakens South African domestic cricket, you know, all that, that intellectual, yes. that, you know, that, that IP is lost, you know, the, the ability to nurture youngsters is lost. 
as a guy who started as a youngster, progressed and became a senior, as you, as you described yourself, an old horse, was there ever a yeah. part where you looked around and be like, yes, we could really do with some more seasoned guys in our domestic game? Yeah, I, I definitely think that there's uh, a case for more seasoned guys. I think it takes a while for the current group of guys to get up to some sort of senior level. Not, not a lot of guys have played 150 games plus per format or, you know, 100 first-class games, list A games are very far and few between. Some of my best friends have played for years and they've only played like 60 games, list A games, you know. Like, it's... it's from an experience point of view, it's um, it's not it's not a hell of a lot. Um, so yes, we do we we do need um, more experienced players, and unfortunately, CSA has decided not to fund the callback players. If you were to have mm. them in the system, mm. and, and and that's a, that's a decision that they took a couple of years back to kind of. Um, once you take your callback deal, you can't basically have your bread buttered on both sides. So have your callback contract and then come back to South Africa and then play for the Titans or the Warriors or the Cobras, for instance. So they they kind of close the door on, on having those senior players, unfortunately. Mm, mm. I see. I saw. I saw Graham Smith is willing to welcome the callback players back. I don't know in what capacity. Um, just t- just staying on that. I mean. Did you, maybe animosity is a bit of a tough word, but did you ever feel sort of a, a negativity towards the guys who who left, who who didn't want to stay and kind of help out? I mean, like, you, you guys are the Titans, you, you were chock full of senior players, but you look at some of the smaller franchises, maybe the Warriors or the Knights, yes. they, they could have really used with uh, uh, more senior players and that would have only have made the domestic game a lot stronger. Was there ever a case that, like you felt like you were on the front lines fighting the good fights and other guys had just ducked and, and, and weren't willing to put in the work? No, that was, that was the decision to make. Okay. I had no issues with them. I'm friends with Arma. I'm friends with uh, Duan Ulafir. I was friends with uh, Dan Villas. Uh, all the guys that decided at the time to go over, it was probably the right time for them to go over. Right. Yes. They got, I mean, look, South African market can't compete with the Rand. So, financially, for those guys that weren't playing international cricket, going in the UK, going to the UK, they would be earning more money, first of all. And second of all, there's so much more cricket to be played in the UK. So, then you get your stats up, you give an opportunity to perform in front of crowds in four-day cricket, vitality blast, you get one-day cricket. There's an opportunity to build a different career, build a different legacy. I think here in South Africa... Uh, there's only 30 games uh, with uh, 10 first class games, 10 50 over games, 10 T20 games, and then there's uh, unfortunately they well not unfortunately but you know there is a quota system in place. Yeah. Not all of them are always guaranteed. Dwayne Willafield, as much as you think he's a great bowler, he has very little T20 and and, and 50 over stats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he plays that format. Simon Armand, the same thing. Just last year, he was T20 player of the year in, in, in the UK. Single-handedly beat one in the semi and beat one as won a final for them. And I don't think he would have had that opportunity in South Africa, un- unfortunately. So as much as it is a financial thing and um, so we need the experience, I firmly believe that we definitely need the experience. It's just... I don't know. It's just a bit. Of, it's a. It's, it's a little bit unfortunate. But there's no. There's no ill feelings towards those guys. They right. make their bed. They line it. 
and uh, we we all kind of just crack on with it. Really, I think the the top brass is more aggrieved by the by 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 their decisions. To be honest, mm. no, that's interesting. So let's let's now go back to the beginning. According to your quick info um, page, you were born in Johannesburg, but you grew up in the western in, in Cape Town. Is that correct? When when Joburg were you born? I was born, uh, man. I was actually writing a memoir. I started writing a memoir. Really, I, I'm not oh, nice. too sure where I was born. Um, when when did you move down to Cape Town? Yeah. Well, I was, I was born in Joburg. I grew up in a place called. Well, I grew up in Ilbra for the first bit of my. Back then, when Ilbra was still decent, and oh, then right. stayed in Bos, stayed in Bosman uh, till five years old, and then moved down to Cape Town when I was five. Uh, lived there for 17 years till 22, and then moved to Pretoria. And I've been in Pretoria for 14 years. That's kind of the cycle. So you consider yourself a, a, a Cape Town kid, though? Yeah, when everybody asks me, where are you from? I always say I'm from Cape Town, but I now currently reside in Pretoria. Right. So I'm always, I'll always be a Cape Townian, and I'll always be from Cape Town. So I grew up, went to school, and uh, but uh, I live in, yeah, I currently live in Pretoria. When did the bug bite? When 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 did the when did the cricket bug bite? I mean, I I remember I, I was I was watching for me I was watching Australia against Africa at an ODI in God I want to say ninety five or ninety six at the Wonders and I just thought this was the coolest thing in the world. I was running around eating those little mini donuts and I was just like this, I I just want to live at a cricket ground. When was it for you? Ninety two World Cup, John Tiras run out in Zimbabwe. Right, that's the. The one moment I thought that's what I want to do one day. Yeah, that I is... thought I want to. I want to. I mean, that's just yeah. Basically, that moment just changed my whole. I thought that was the coolest thing I've seen. It was on TV. I knew I wanted to play sport on TV because not too long after that, I went to Newlands and Aussies were touring. Yeah, I think in '94. Steve War. I got an autograph, photograph of Steve War, and I thought that was my most prized position. Hmm. Um, yeah, it was around, so 92, I was, what, nine years old, and I just thought, oh man, that was the, that was the coolest thing, John T. Rose run out I've ever seen, and that kind of, kind of got me hooked from there on on. It's amazing how one play can, can change, can change your, your relationship with the sport. I mean, it, you, you didn't mention the results, you didn't even mention the, the tournament, it, it was that one play that John T. Rhodes picked the, picks the ball up and dives and runs into Imam Al-Haq out. As a professional player now, you play for South Africa, do you ever think at the back of your mind, like, I could do something that, like, changes a kid's life? Like, is that ever something that, that, that you think about? Um, I don't know. I, 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 I don't think about it that way. I kind of just think I could do something really special that I'll remember forever or I'll do something I, I, I can do something really special to, to win the game for my team from absolutely nowhere I think that those types of memories rather I mean sticks in rather than doing it that some kids going to remember mm. I do it because I wanted to do it because whenever the chips are down or when, the, when there's nothing no more a slither of a chance to win or to kind of come out on top, that's the moment that I kind of think about. Like, if nothing else is on, maybe I can do something special here. Mm. So, you begin your professional career down in Cape Town, as you said, in 2004. 
your first class debut is against Eastern Province, where you share the new ball with Craig Alexander in a side that also includes Paul Adams. Now, was your was your captain up to something, or did you have some serious serious wheels back then? No, I was a I was a bowler. So in high school, I was I opened the bowling in high school and I batted four, five, four. I think four when I opened the bowling. When I went to varsity, I went to UCT, and uh, my opening bowling partner was Ryan Tenderskater. Oh wow! And we had we had a we won everything that he has a club side, the UCT cricket side. Uh, we had an unbelievable side. We won uh, the two day league in Cape Town, the knockout league in Cape Town. We won varsity varsity week. Uh, in Pretoria, and then we won club champs as well. So we were the best club in the country in 2002-2003 season. And I learned my cricket from Rantin Scott, similar players. Uh, but back then, I mean, I, I could crank it up to about 130. So I was like, yeah, I mean, who bowls 130? Probably like Andile, maybe a little bit quicker than Andile, Pechle mm. um, But I was, but I was, I was, I was very skilled. Uh, as, and that's, I opened the bowling for the B side, but also I was young, <laughs> so my back could handle it. Right. And then, uh, uh, so yeah, I was an opening bowler back um, in the day. You also, you also scored 60, batting at number 8 in your side's first innings. I mean, for me, that, that's quite indicative of your career, because I mean, if I, if I had to look at that and say, okay, this guy opened the bowling, uh, he does all right, numbers are okay, he scores 60, batting at number 8. I mean, I would have no idea how to pin you down as a cricketer. But I mean, I guess w- when people look back at your career, it is quite hard to pin you down as a cricketer. I mean, you're perhaps one of the most polarizing figures in, in, in modern Proteus history. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> what what kind of cricketer are you? Uh, I would say I'm a fighter. I've never, never been the prettiest of players. I'm a fighter and I've evolved into a batting, a batsman. I would say from the last two years, but I was a bowling all rounder that evolved into a batting all rounder because the Titans bowling unit was always strong. That yeah. Paul Harris, Dale Stein, Mornay Morkel, Etienne Balati, Alfonso Thomas, Albie Morkel. Um, and then for the majority of my years, we played with two all rounders in, in white pool cricket. David Fisher and Albie Morkel as your all rounders batting at six and seven. That's besides three fast bowlers and a spinner. Mm. And Henry Davis is batting up in the top order. That's before I DeMarcum came. So that's two off-spinners, more than capable off-spinners. And then that's if Dean Alder plays, there's your other left, I'm orthodox. So you had, and then I was the the odd one out, you know. So <laughs> I never bowled. Uh, I bowled into a batting all-rounder. It's funnily enough, I bowled more for South Africa than I'd ever bowled for the Titans. Yeah, yeah. Do you wish and, you bowled uh, more? For South Africa, for the Titans? No, well, well, both, just in your career. I mean, as you said, you started as a bowler. Do you, do you yeah. wish that you, that, you were, that, that you were as remembered for your bowling as your batting? Um, I always thought I could do a job, but I thought, I think early on, I was just very evident that I wasn't going to bowl too much. So instead of working on my skill set like 50-50, 50%, 50%, I geared towards batting. I staggered the batting uh, work ethic a lot more because I, I knew you know, me bowling 120 even if I really cranked it up <laughs> in my old age getting up to 125 kilometers per hour was basically not going to do anything mm. so I basically stacked my my training and everything I'd stacked it against uh, against the bowling I'd kind of worked so hard on my batting and that was and my fielding and my batting and 
and learning that craft more so. But I would say, if you ask me what type of cricket I am, I would say I'm a fighter, you know, chips are down, I try and get the team to a respectable score or try and chase, chase a, a score down. Um, a team man, I mean, you ask me what type of player I'm a, I consider myself quite a team man, whatever the team needs, and I've never been selfish in that regard. Mm. It's interesting you talk about how there came a stage in your career where you had to focus on your batting rather than your bowling. I just wonder, as a senior player who's played 14 years at the top, have you seen talented youngsters not make that decision or make that decision too late where, where if only they had focused more on their batting and given up their bowling or if only they had stopped trying to be the first team wicketkeeper and had just focused on their batting or something like that. I mean, is that something that that is actually quite difficult for youngsters to make, that decision? Um, yeah, the thing is, if you were to ask me what, what advice would I give, I would, my advice is to try and do everything, to try and be three-in-one cricketers, to try and offer some spin or some medium pace, or to try and be a, a spare wicketkeeper. Or, you know, it's, I think that's where the game is kind of geared to. Yes, you do have your specialist bowlers, your specialist batters, but... If you have the capabilities to do a few of the a few of the disciplines, then then try to. Uh, but there is a there is there is definitely a time where like one of my really good friends, Anna Kun, he was one of the best wicketkeeper batters in the country. He averaged forty five in first class cricket, and he was one of the best most most athletic wicketkeepers in our country. Unfortunately, the guy ahead of him was Mark Boucher, and Boucher wasn't going to be dropped. So. After a while, he just decided, well, look, his back's gonna, not going to handle it for too much longer. He's going to just decide to become a batsman. And we all we all hated that decision for him because Bach was coming to the... Bach had his injury with his eye and Hanuk gave up the keeping. And mm. I mean, we were, we, were, we were all just so uh, upset for him. We were, we were just like bleak for him because we knew that he had the capabilities to play. And you know what, actually, fortunately, he actually got his opportunity to yeah. play test match cricket uh, as a batsman. So that decision kind of worked out for him, even though we all thought that it was a poor one. So, right. I mean, that's all, that, that all depends what you make of your decision, if you can kind of push through and, 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 and be uh, masterful in your discipline, whether it be bowling, batting, or spin, or whatever. So, mm. yeah, that's kind of my thought, you know. Yeah, so by the time we get to around 2006, 2007, you're, you're pretty settled in, in that Titan side. I mean, alongside Martin van Jaskot. No. And, 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 and he started in 2006 and 2000. I beg your pardon, I beg your pardon. 2006, 2007 is your breakout year, though. Uh, you, alongside Martin van Jaskot and Heino Kuhn, you play all 10 Supersport Series matches. Um, yes. You, you average 32 with the bats in a winning campaign. You play a full quota of MTN 50 over comps. Uh, likewise, yep. likewise in the T20 format where you reach the semi-finals. I, I love how you're saying yeah, yeah. Like it's all like it's just you just know your stats. I, I love a cricketer who knows who knows their history. <laughs> um, yeah, in, 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 in that year we won eight out of ten games. We're the only we only the second side. There's only one team that's won eight first-class games out of ten ever in the history of South African cricket, and that's the Me Machine, uh, the Transvaal Me Machine. And we the team that won eight out of that year. We won eight out of ten games, which is one of the best. Uh, Introductions to cricket that I've ever had, which is pretty pretty special. And, and, and as, as, as you said, you, you you played you played all ten matches um, in that series. I mean, what an introduction to, to walk into a side and and, and become a, a team akin to the Mean Machine. I mean, 
did you think that hey man you know what this this is it so i'm give me two three years i'm gonna i'm gonna be in the pro tiers yeah look i had a very disillusioned view of my playing when i started my my professional career in, in uh in cape town when i played for the second team western province now i've never played a first team game for the cobras so I thought I was going to play one year for the, for the second team, and I was going to, the next year I was going to play for the for the for the Western Province or for the or for the Cobras at the time. And then in three years' time, from eighteen, I was going to play, be a, a national player. I had such a disillusioned view of what it would take. Mm. Um, and yeah, look, even when I started the Titans, I knew I had, I had so I had such hard work because that team was so settled. The national team was quite settled and. Shark Callis and Achim Amla and you had A.B. de Villiers kind of breaking the mould and oh no I look I, I, I knew there was a hard work ahead of me if I wanted to play for the national side but that first year was a pretty cool start though mm. you say you were disillusioned though do you think that that prevented you from doing something that you perhaps should have uh, working hard on particular aspects of your game I mean disillusionments can, can often lead to to ill judgment when it comes to strategy. Yeah, no, look, but that's when I was in Cape Town. I think I had a kind of an epiphany, which was probably one of the worst moments of my life. I tore my ACL playing rugby mm. uh, in the winter of uh, 2005. Because I was playing rugby and cricket at school, and I loved rugby. And uh, just before the start of the of that summer in 2005, I thought, look, I'll play off a rugby season, get my fitness up, get rough, get tough. Stop about two months before the cricket season, get fit, get cricket fit, do my skill work, you know, give it a real crack, you know, tore my ACL. And mm. that, that kind of gave me the drive and the passion. And that kind of, so three years after school, I was like, okay, cool, I was cruising along. And then I hurt my knee, and then I moved to Pretoria, and then I actually realized, well done, this is going to take a lot, a lot longer than just a couple of years before I, you know, establish myself as a regular performer and a winner, championship winner, maybe mm. play for South Africa. So that's kind of the, the, what it took, and an injury kind of gave me that perspective. Your career coincided at this stage with with a golden generation of players. I mean. At, in South Africa, at the top of the order, Graham Smith, Hashim Amla, um, A.B. de Villiers, Jacques Callis was still knocking around, Fuff was coming through, J.P. was doing his thing, uh, Wayne Ponell yes. and Johan Boerzer added to the roster of all-rounders at the 2011 World Cup. I mean, was there ever a point where you where you doubted it would happen for you? No. Never. No. I... So what happened in two, before Faf Duplessis made his debut in 2000 and in the summer of 2011, the beginning, uh, so the year before Colin Ingram made his debut for South Africa in mm. ODI cricket, in the 50 over uh, uh, competitions preceding his uh, selection, he batted three for the Warriors, got 500 plus lines in that, in that uh, domestic comp, got selected for South Africa. The year after that, Faf Duplessis did exactly the same thing. Scored 500 plus runs, batting at three for the Titans, got selected for South Africa. And I was like, okay, what should I do here? I'm now, I'm, I'm, I've been playing for about four years, maybe. I've been playing for about five years, or uh, sorry, four years at the time. And I thought, should I ask the coach, do I need to bat at number three and score 500 plus runs in a domestic comp before getting selected for South Africa? I decided on a different route. I decided on, look, I've never batted in the top three in my life. I've always been 5'6". 
if I can be the best finisher in the country, um, that might be an opportunity for me to play for South Africa. Mm. And that's what I focused on. And I knew I had Justin Antong was in my position, Ryan Bailey at the time, David Miller at the, uh, well, still currently, and Jean Sams with the Lions. Those are the guys that I was competing with. And um, I took it upon myself and... Yeah, I suppose I got there in the end. It took, it took me six years. <laughs> so it's interesting that, that, that your path to the protest side was paved with a different strategy where rather than being, okay, I'm going to be number three, four, I'm going to, I'm going to score over the 500 runs and be the, the premier batter in the side, I'm going to be the guy who finishes. I mean, we, it's, it's perhaps an, such an underrated skill. I mean, I grew up watching Michael Bevan and I, I couldn't understand what this guy was doing. How was he so good at finishing? And you look at the protest now and it's like, well, could really do with a player like that. I mean, what is the secret of being a good finisher? You know, what, what is the mindset that is required to, to be, okay, I'm not going to be the guy at number four. I'm going to be the guy at number six. I might not score as many runs, but I'm going to win more matches. You have to have a tough skin, first of all. Right. <laughs> that position comes with a lot of uh, criticism, yeah. a lot of a lot of hardship. A lot of misunderstanding, I think, from the public as well. People don't really understand that position, do they? Yeah, it's tough. They see you not. I mean, sometimes you have to go with uh, strike rate of well, run. You have to chase a game. Right, you started at sevens and gets up nine, ten quickly, and they can't imagine why, why, why you're not taking on a boundary option, and mm. they thinking, uh, you know, why you're not taking a risk now, or why you waiting so long, and then if you get out. Scoring twenty or twenty, you basically lost. You lost the game for the team, and such a such a. I mean, my 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 first comment about it was to have a tough skin or thick skin because mm. you know that you know when you haven't done well, you know when you haven't taken the right that the right option, you know you should have maybe hit a single or try and push more twos today instead of trying to hit six sixes in the over type thing. So it's just it's. It's just so tough. There's so many nuances. There's so many little uh, idiosyncrasies. There's so, so, so many little things about chasing or sitting a score, batting at the back end, the pitch, the bowlers, the quality of the bowlers, the quality of the umpiring, uh, how big the field is. Uh, is it quick paced? Uh, is the ball reversing now? Is it is it tailing just a little bit? Is the cut is gripping a bit more? Is the bowler using his bounces a bit more? you got to think about so many different things. Yeah. I imagine that the most important thing is that you have to want to do it. You have you have to be the guy who says, yes. "Get me on strike. I'm going to do this." I mean, what a what a terrifying prospect that must be at times. Yeah, that is uh, you got that mindset. So you asked about the mindset, and, the, and you got a thick skin. But the mindset is you have to get up and go again because probably you're not going to succeed a couple of games in a row. And but then at one time you do succeed in whatever chasing or setting, like take confidence from that you hold on to all of the good things and as soon as you make an error you kind of um, what's the word you kind of just spin it you let it go you hold on to all, all of the good things but the mindset has to be a strong one you have to want to do it you have to be fit to do it at the back end because you have to you can't be fatigued you have to yeah you have to I mean sorry my neighbor was just shouting across the thing here. that's alright <laughs> yeah, you're gonna have to want to do it, and, and um, that's basically the bottom line. If you don't want to do it, then you get out of the kitchen, really. Yeah. 
So 20, 2011, 2012, you, you have that, that year that, that gets you on the radar. You average 45 in the 50-over competition and 66 in the T20 competition. And you're, yes. rec- and you're recognized as South Africa's T20 player of the year. What, 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 what clicked that season? I mean, um, what are your memories of that campaign? Um, so we had a new coach, Matthew Maynard, uh, at the time. We went through quite a lean spell just before. So uh, three years, uh, two years with Richard Pibus, unbelievable. Two years with Chris Van Wertveig. Um And then in the fifth year, which was the 2011-2012 season, Matthew Maynard came. And he came with a different philosophy in the UK about trust yourselves and, and, and that he backs you and he's played 400 first class games for uh, in the UK and he's played 400 uh, list A games so he comes with a wealth of experience so he, sp- he spoke with a calmness and he kind of gave me the confidence to go out and express myself the way that I wanted to and um, and that was I went through a, I just went through a purple patch you know sometimes you go through a comp where you just everything clicks and uh, in the final, I got about 46 of about 26 balls um, not out, and we got to a score of 180 at the Wanderers at the boarding. And I played it perfectly. I studied the game really well. My four years uh, preceding that particular year was uh, awesome uh, apprenticeship, and I studied the bowling well that particular competition, uh, and I was on top of it that that year. Yeah. And and you so that that earns you your national call up a, a T twenty against India at the Wonders um, yeah. on the thirtieth of March twenty twelve. Uh, let's just back up slightly. I mean, what was it like being involved in the protest camp in the lead up to that? And uh, you know, what, what, did you ever doubt that you belonged? I mean, m- many of us in in any field, you know, from time to time, feel imposter syndrome that we're out of our depth. And I've spoken to many athletes who have. Who have spoken about this? That you know that, that that you get that little doubt in your mind, like, am I good enough? Until you actually do step on the field, did you ever feel that, or, or did you feel comfortable from the get go? No, I think uh, so. The coach at the time is uh, Gary Kirsten, mm. and uh, one of the best coaches I've ever played under. So um, I think that particular year when I batted really well in the comps and the white ball stuff. I had, I had the confidence. I was playing against players that were of good good quality. Uh, you know, Chris uh, Chris Morris was playing for the Lions. The young Chris Morris, Swell Tanvirus playing for the Lions. Um, we had Imran Tayyip playing for the for the Dolphins. Carl Abbott was playing. Iwan um, van der Vaart was playing for the uh, Ryan McLaren. Was playing for the Knights. Uh, uh, Nicky Boyer, the Cobras. It was uh, Rory Kleinfeld. Uh, Vernon Freelander, Justin Kemp, I mean, with Charles Langefeld was still in the setup. So, the, me coming through that season, player play of the year in a, a 10 T20 comp gave, gave me that confidence. Mm. Going up to the next level was, is everybody's question is, can I, can, I, can I crack it at this level? Made my debut that night, Jacques Callas, one of my absolute batting heroes, idols when I was growing up. I always wanted to be Jacques Callas instead of Herschel Gibbs. Because he was everything correct and pure, and uh, I thought I was going to bat six and seven. And Gary said to me, "The team meeting the night before, you batting at four tomorrow." And I thought, "I don't even bat four for the Titans, but he <laughs> wanted me to bat at four for for the national side." Wow! We lose an early wicket, and uh, Jacques Callas, I'm next in. It was, we lose a wicket in, in, inside the first over. 
or the second over, and I thought, oh no, if I go, you're playing against India, it's a full Indian side as well. Dhoni, Shudesh Raina, if I'm just a bomb, a bomb Indian side. And uh, I'm batting, I'm batting, I'm batting, and I'm very comfortable from overs outside of the power play. I, was, I never really batted inside the power play. And Jacques Callis and Carl Ingram, I think at the time, they had a massive partnership. And I only got in an over 15. And Jacques Callis, my hero, got out and he was walking off and I was walking onto the field. So we kind of crossed paths and he kind of stopped and he said to me, Fudgy, the wicket's good. Um, go get some runs for us. And that kind of, that gave me so much goosebumps. The guy that I idolized for years as a kid growing up was the guy walking off giving me advice to go score runs for us. And us, I mean, the Proteas, I mean, our country. And mm. that, was, that was one of the more, more, more special moments uh, in my cricketing career, a guy that stature and that nature, one of the best players that ever played the game, giving me advice. This young kid making his debut. I mean, that was a. I mean, that was a pretty special moment. Yeah, your second game for South Africa is at the T20 World Cup in Sri Lanka, uh, which could have gone better. You guys are knocked out in the second round, having failed to win your three matches at that stage. But you played nine T20s before your ODI debut. Were you were you worried at any stage that you were maybe being pigeonholed as a as a T Twenty specialist? No, not at all. Mm. I was that was just the pathway that I was going to get picked. I mean, my breakout year was, um, or my breakout format was T Twenty. Gave me the confidence, just gave me the platform to play for South Africa. And uh, no, I mean, I wasn't concerned at all. I think one day cricket's a bit more. Um, challenging. There's so many different scenarios. T20, you, uh, it's shorter. I kind of knew my game at that time. I knew what was required, but then, you know, stepping up a level just changes the the ball game because the quality of the bowlers are much better. So, but I wasn't I, I wasn't concerned about being pigeonholed. Um, well, certainly not then. As I got on in my career, I'm sure you'll get to that. I've, I felt a bit pigeonholed. Yes, yes, we will. Um, but I, And one of the things, which is a bit of a double-edged sword, you've touched on it, though, because in, in 2013, you dig the side out of a hole with a gutsy 58 in an ODI against Pakistan in Centurion. Uh, yes. You guys my lose first the, you got, Yeah, exactly. You guys lose the game on Duckworth Lewis, but you solidify your reputation as a man for a tough situation. And as you said, you're a fighter. But I've spoken to players who have been labelled as gritty and combative and, and, and gutsy. And these are, of course, positive words, but they can also be shorthand phrases for guys who, who maybe lack flair or skill. Or, you, know, we, you know, people talk about Dean Elgar yes. in, in that way. People maybe even talk about you know, Alistair Cook, Sir Alistair Cook, a giant of the game in, in that way. But, but it also comes with a touch of negativity. I mean, do you perceive the, these attributes that you speak about as a bit double-edged? Um, no, from from my point of view, I um, I welcome them. Okay. I, I think I, I I think sports in general isn't all about the flash and all about the the way that it's done. I think it's a lot goes on behind the scenes, whether it's the gym work, the rehab work. If you've been injured, the amount of preparation, the way you prepare. You know, you can be gutsy, you can be gritty in that. You can test yourself, uh, and the way it comes out. I mean that. <laughs> The whole point about the, our game is specifically cricket and specifically batting is that no matter how you get there, if you get there, it's 
that'll be loaded and uploaded. Mm. That's it. Mm. And that was my, I don't care how I get there. I can have a dirty bottom and squeeze one stomach wicket all day. I don't care. I can edge a few fours, you know, like uh, that pass the keeper. It doesn't matter how, how I do it. As long as I'm there and I can kind of fight, uh, fight that mental battle to get over the line, like that's all that matters to me. Yeah, I remember an innings once. One of my favorite innings of all time was uh, Rilla van der Merwe against Australia, where he was hoiking, trying to hoik Brackley over mid-wicket, but he kept top-edging it for six over third man. And I think, I think it might have been his debut, was, to be honest. Was that his mistaken. debut? Yeah, do, do you remember that innings? I mean, he must have done it like, like three or four times. It was, it was the most incredible knock I've ever seen. No, just, yeah, we still take the piss. We still pull the piss about that. Is about it? his batting all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, maybe you guys will, will, will share fields in, in England once, once normality resumes. But I, I want I to talk about something a bit... A bit negative, unfortunately. One of the things yes. you will be remembered for is being involved in that drop catch of Grant Elliott in the 2015 World Cup semi-final. Um, yeah. But before we get onto that, what, what was the mood in the camp leading up to that game against New Zealand? There was a lot of noise around the selection of Vernon Philander over Carl Abbott and rumours of discontent from the skipper AB. D- d- were you guys in a good space leading up to that game? Um. The team was in a great space. I think we we thought we could get New Zealand. If, if, if we can get to the final, there's nobody else out of... Because uh, who, who did Australia play in the semis? Pakistan? Oh, that is a good question. I'm not sure who they played. I think they played Pakistan, if I'm not mistaken. And I think... I think they... Because they, they were top, I think they won. So they were really through to the final. So we And then we played New Zealand. So I think because we... We believe that if we got to the final, we were the only team that could beat them because we had... Uh, they played India. Sorry to interrupt. They played India. India. Okay. They, okay. They, they, they played India. But I think they beat India already. And and then we, we, we just had this feeling that if we got to the semi, the final ahead of New Zealand, I, we had more firepower. We had Dale Stein, Mornay Morkel. We just had a, A.B. de Villiers who basically cleaned up the whole of the World Cup that mm. particular year. Um, we had Ashim Amla, we had Quentin de Kock, we had we had people that could actually hurt Australia. Right. So that so we were like we were we were pretty confident and we and we had a great quarter final against Sri Lanka in Sydney and uh and we thought, Oh man, this is gonna be on as that game unfolded and then the night before, like there was obviously very public knowledge as to what happened with regards to Vernon and Carl and mm. that kind of just unsettled the team a little bit but I don't think it affected our performance that day because we batted really well and we were probably on target for about 350 plus and the rain intervened and that I mean yeah we got to the score that we got to and Things unfolded, and I was so keen to get onto the field. And Vernon Philander was kind of—he was physically fit, but not match fit. And he got through his overs. I think he bowled his overs for about—I'm not too certain—six runs and over, or six and a half. And I was so keen to kind of make a difference. And I was like, "Get Vernon off, and I'll go field. Like I'll try and make a difference." Yeah. And that unfortunate incident happened. I kind of blocked it out of my mind because the ball was going ten meters to my right, and there was only one person under the ball and JP ran from fine leg and the fine leg, a normal fine leg, it was too far, but because of the, the rugby field nature of the cricket field, mm. means that fine leg was actually fairly fairly closer than a normal cricket field than, than the oval shape or the round shape. Right. 
and it, it was so loud at, at Eden Park that night. But I caught a glimpse of him in out of the corner of my eye. The split second, I had to keep my eye on the ball, and the rest, and he crashed into me, yeah. and, and that was it. I mean, you know, let, let, let's talk about the catch because you know, two two players colliding under a high ball is as old as cricket. You know, people have been doing it since we invented this game, and it really is just one of those things that happen. But but because you guys are so good at what you do, I mean, you're professional athletes. The, the public tends to assume that that you're somehow infallible superhumans, incapable of mistakes. I mean, you you speak about the dimensions of the field, but I mean. What's it like when you forget forget a player running into you? Just just standing under a high ball in a higher pressure match with thousands of people watching, and you know millions of people are watching around the ground. I mean, what's that like? I mean, that must be quite nerve wracking. With without so, without someone running towards you. Yeah, so I mean, I'll take you through that old st- uh, scenario. Is that we were doing catches the day before on that exact same spot on the field. Hmm. So we would, but at night time. From the dimensions of the, of the of the stadium, right? So it's a rugby stadium, not with big pylons. They are very low lane light. So once the ball went up in the air, it goes up past the pile, past the, the stadium light. So it goes, you see it, and then you don't see it, and then the ball comes through the lights, and then you see it again. Mm. Second of all, it's the loudest game ever, or the loudest sporting event at Eden Park ever, even bigger than Springboks versus All Blacks. Yeah. A, all the people we've ever spoken to have said that's loud. It's the loudest Eden Park has ever been. Then, you, so there was no communication with regards to my ball or Fudge's ball or JB's ball. Thirdly, it was a big thing in our in our whole chat leading up to the fielding part of our of our uh, day is that you have to want the ball. You have to be the person that wants it. So you don't shy away from the pressure. You actually want to. You embrace the pressure and try and do something special for your team. And that is JP's mindset. And that's why, in a normal scenario, he leaves it to me, trust me, and to make the catch or not make the catch. Like, he trusts me to kind of complete it. Mm. But because he wanted to be the guy, and everybody want, he wanted the ball, he wanted to embrace the pressure and be the person to make a difference, he had nothing other but eyes on the ball. And unfortunately... He, he probably didn't realize I was basically right under, I was right under the ball and he wasn't stopping I could see him coming but like and I focused on the ball the ball came through the clouds and then through the lights and I was under the ball and then the last split second I saw him still sprinting he dove he clipped me and then the ball was dropped yes oh uh, man you don't have so those are the three things yeah no no well I, I'm I haven't I haven't heard you speak on that before, uh, and it you know it all it all makes sense, and and yet, as you say, you, you you try and block it out of your mind. I mean, you've got you only have one more over to think about it. You know, you you don't really have a lot of time to to dwell. But but while Dale is bowling, is is it hard not to think about it? I mean, or, or is that kind of all all you can really think about? I think you think about uh, maybe the Villiers must run out chance. You think yeah. about Quentin the Cox must run out chance. Yeah. You think about some of some of those things. You, know, you think about a run, out, a run here, maybe a fumble there. You think about all sorts of different things. You think that maybe you're not the only one. You think that maybe, I mean, I didn't play that semi-final. Yes, I, I, I probably a part of one of the biggest parts to play in a knockout tournament for our country. Um, I don't know. I, I kind of tried to block it out. I, 
didn't take it on board as much as what Mona and Dale had because it was probably their last World Cups that they were going to go to. Right. Uh, from a 50 other point, I know Dale still managed to make it, uh, but from that old school unit in 2015, I know AB felt it heavily because he was captain and what? I never felt it as much because I never played as much. What was it like in the dressing room after the, after, you know, Grant Eddie hits that six and, and it's, it's, it is one of the most, uh, unfortunately, South Africa were on the losing end, but it was one of the most iconic World Cup moments in the history of yeah. the game. But not that you guys are thinking about that in the dressing room. I mean, what, what, is, the, what is the atmosphere like when you, when you head back up the tunnel and into the dressing room? Yeah, it's like a rugby change room. It's quite uh, deep, quite far. Like, uh, it's quite a massive, it's a massive change room. So you're quite far from each other. Um, nothing, we just sat in the change room for about half an hour, an hour. Uh, New Zealand team came in, or well, we went to the New Zealand change room actually. We congratulated them and wished them well in the final. And there's quite good blood between the New Zealand and the and South African cricket teams. They're quite nice guys and they see us as nice guys. So we get along with the guys quite nicely. And mm. um, and then the night we went back to the hotel, I don't think we went to bed till like six in the morning because we just couldn't believe it. We couldn't sleep. We just chilled in one of the guys' rooms and we listened to music and. I suppose nobody could sleep because if you close your eyes, the first thing you think about is is the game. And so we wanted to stay awake and chat. And we ordered food, late night burgers and stuff. And like, and until basically when you shut your eyes, you were basically so tired that you fell asleep. And we all woke up at like two in the afternoon. And we went, yeah. So I mean, that was basically how it all un- unfolded. There was the quiet. There was just some silence in the change room and. Uh, yeah, we kind of picked each other up a few days later, really. Right. But I mean, you, you know, as you said, it's, it's, it's perhaps one of the things that, that you will be remembered for. But, but you played in the IPL, you went to Canada, um, played for the Edmonton yeah. Royals, I mean, which, which is quite amazing. I mean, that must have almost felt like a missionary uh, you know, quest to go and take the, the religion of cricket to one of the far-flung regions of the world. Yeah. Um, you played in the in, in the fanatic IPL. You captained your country. I mean, let's talk about captaining the country. What what was that like? I mean, must must have been an absolute dream come true. Yeah, dream come true. Captain of my country. Uh, I was at Saudi. I was at the Oval. Uh, well, the last time I played for our national side in the Champions Trophy in two thousand and seventeen. And on the wall, there's a captain's wall. So if you cut, if you, if you've captained your country, you can put your name on that on that particular wall. And um, that was quite a that's just a little side note. But mm. a lot of the players, a lot of the players were resting. I know JP was resting. Kahisa, JP, Faf, uh, Quentin the Cock. Uh, it was five players and Ashim. They were all resting. So it, it was started to blood a few younger guys. And at that time, I was probably one of the more senior guys in the team from a playing wise and. Um, I, from my age, from an age perspective, I was obviously a bit older as well. And um, yeah, it was a mon- uh, momentous occasion. This young kid who grew up on the Cape Flats, uh, grew up in Ilbra, and then then uh, resided in the Cape Flats for the majority of his life, to now be captain in his country. Uh, you know, one of the best eleven cricketers in that particular format on that particular day was very special. And uh, captain in that particular 
day was at Supersport Park, my mm. home ground. So that mm. was also extra special. And we won. So, I mean, it was just a bit of a fairy tale start and a fairy tale day, really. You speak about, you know, born in Hillbrow, grew up in the Cape Flats, you know, like a, a, a kid who, who could have only have dreamed of this. I mean, what, what you're touching on there is, is class and, and, and privilege and, and, and maybe, even, maybe even things like race. I mean, are, are, do you consider yourself socially or, or, or politically aware or active in any way? I mean, when, when you pull on the shirt, do you feel like you are representing something more than just a, than just a cricket team? When I put on that, when I put on that national shirt, I was definitely representing more than just. I was representing my community where I grew up. I was representing my family. Uh, I was representing the hardships we went through as a family, as a, as an immediate family, and as a, a, a greater part of my family. As a personal struggle from my, I had a very serious injury uh, in 2005 when I was 20, 21 years old. Uh, ACL potential career-threatening injury. Um, yeah, the trouble, the strife, the hard yards, the club cricket, the amateur cricket, you know, six, seven years of, or ten years of playing uh, first-class cricket to then captain your country. You know, it's a long, goes back such a long way. And uh, I definitely felt that there was a bit more, you know, for my parents, my dad. And them, they got kicked out of their houses in District 6 when during the apartheid era. Right. Um, my uncle got locked up because you know they got, they got arrested for rioting and stuff. So I mean, it was it was not rioting like pro- pro- protesting. Uh, protesting. Sorry, not rioting. Protesting. Sorry, and uh, you know stuff like that. My family got thrown to jail for the, for, for, for for those trying to fight for their for for, for their rights as South African citizens. And um, so when I put on that shirt, I mean. Especially that day to cattle my country, I thought that was that was that was quite a proud moment. We we see in America athletes who use their platform to espouse social and political change, like Colin Kaepernick, for example, in the NFL, or you know, yeah. um, you know, LeBron James, or, or whoever it may be. Given given that your family were kicked out of of their homes and your uncle was arrested for protesting the an evil apartheid regime. Were you ever tempted, or have you ever been tempted to to use your platform for for protest or, or, or social activism? Um, you know, I've been very fortunate. That even though my parents went through that particular uh, phase in their lives, I, uh, they sheltered me from uh, feeling it myself um, or, or being exposed to it. I, we grew up. I grew up in Surrey State on the Cape Flats. It's the suburb next to Manenberg. Manenberg is one of the most notorious suburbs in the country yeah. uh, with regards to drugs and crime. So, and even then, when I was staying at uh, that particular residence for, I want to say, um, five till about six, seven, to about 12 years, I stayed in that particular suburb, Saudi state. And it was so community orientated. We played cricket in the streets and soccer in the streets. and. I, I never really felt it, so I, I didn't. I never really knew what it was like. I was just a kid at the time, and all these all these things were happening. I was just happy to be uh, to play uh, some sport in the backyard with my little brother and with my friends in the street and my friends at school. And so, I, 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 not that I'm not for social like social activism, and, and, and I, I'm not naive to think that look. Things are tough, but personally, I think there's a time and a place, and I would rather let my 
personal actions speak and the way I live try try to speak more than actually saying something and posting and being very active in that particular space I think especially playing for South Africa and being involved with the Titans I mean you do have a persona and, and you know to have such strong political um, stances it just seemed like I would be fighting so many different battles mm. other than uh, other than trying to finish a game off where that's already in itself so tough. Yeah. So I, I decided, you know, uh, to kind of stay away from that as best as I can um, because I know deep down, my family knows deep down what I've been struggling for and what we've been fighting for and, um, you know, to kind of do what I'm doing and for my family to be in a good place is kind of victory enough for us personally. But I know there are other people struggling uh, much more out there and... Um, but I think this, like social media and all of that, just it's going to add so much pressure on the on on me personally because professional sport in itself is already so 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 tough. Yeah. No, I think I think that's well said, Fudge. I think that's well said. Um, you you seem like such a chilled guy, both on and off the field. I mean, do you ever get riled up? Do you, I mean, a lot of people have opinions about you, journalists, fans on Twitter. Do those nasty comments ever get under your skin? It's actually quite funny. Uh, I actually blocked Rob Howing on Twitter <laughs> once. I think he's still blocked. I don't even know. I haven't met the guy at all. Uh, I mean, I, I probably probably should un, unblock him, but to be honest. But like, I went through a phase, phase in 2013. My debut in 2012. Went to Sri Lanka in 2013. Played a... Uh, Bomb Sri Lanka side, Tilakrat and Tilshan, Kumar Sangakara, Maela Jawal, and Ajanta Mendes, who was number one ODI bowler, or close to in the world at the time. Yeah, they were a great a very fit, A very fit, uh, young Lasit Malinga. Like, yeah. I mean, I never played the first two games. I played the third game, got a duck. I got basically one uh, duck 1 1 in my three innings, the, the third, the fourth, and the fifth ODI. Uh, actually, in the third ODI, the only ODI we won, I got three for 19 in seven overs. We actually won that game. So my bowling actually won us a game for my country, which was actually quite weird because I hardly bowled. But, um, a throwback to, to your varsity days. Yeah, I thought, I thought that was quite a cool moment. I still brag about it till today. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I scored two runs in three innings, and I was... I've done by Janta Mendes twice and in the last game I got one of like 15 balls I couldn't hit the ball off the square I was I felt like I was uh, in, in no man's land and uh, Rob Howing was writing some things about me and I that's the emergence and the boom of like um, social media I would imagine seven, eight years ago where everything just took off and I did and took a lot of things to heart because you wanted to know how good you were or how well you were performing. And uh, I, I took it personally, but and then I decided to not read anything in the paper, read anything in the news. Uh, but six months after that, it took a while. It scarred me for about three months after that tour. Wow! I was, I know, I was, I was in such a bad place. It took me three three months to get back to feeling myself again. But I made a conscious effort to not read into uh, sports, uh, read journalism, read... Uh, you you know as a player when you've done badly and, and, and when you've done well. So 
that Burakana aren't on to. It's interesting you say when you've done well, because I imagine reading the comments after you've done well can be just as dangerous as reading the comments after you've done badly, because the good comments could, could maybe then make you think that you're the next Don Bradman. But that's what I decided to not to read. Yeah, not to read anything good or bad. Yeah. That was the one uh, like rule that I had, is that as much as I didn't want to read uh, the bad things or just block that out, I can't only just read the good things. Because I decided to entirely just wipe it off. Like, no, don't read anything unless it's like messages from my family or friends. And, mm-hmm. and that's different. But like the news articles, and I decided very about a year, well, six or well, three months after that, is that probably the same people that will write badly about you is the same people that's going to write good news reports about you. So you could take them with a pinch of salt and. Like I said, you you basically know when you've when you haven't batted well, or you, you might have taken the wrong decision today. You kind of know all of those things. Yeah, just just finally, now a lot of change has gone on in South African cricket over the last year. Mark Boucher, who of course you worked closely with at the Titans, is in charge. Graham Smith is is at the helm, at director of cricket. Are, are you optimistic that 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 a corner has been turned? I mean. You know more about domestic cricket than anyone in South Africa. I mean, if you could, if you could change something about the structure, the way things are run, you know, you know maybe an extra team or two. What, what would, what would you do if you were in charge? <laughs> Man, I have discussions all the time. I still sit on the players' uh, players' board. Uh, I've been on the players' board for about six, seven years now, mm. and um, Saka. Okay. We actually, yeah. Now look, it's good. For um, it's good for our, for our cricket economy that you know there's some stability at the top. Doctor Jacques Full, Graham Smith, Mark Boucher. There's some like very strong individuals in those particular positions. Um, we've been asking for. We've been trying to devise a, 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 a structure um, that's going to be a shake-up. That's going to be uh, fruitful to. South African cricket that's going to provide uh, that is going to produce pro-tier players it's all dependent on cash and surplus and how much income you have per year per four year cycle uh, personally I think you should have eight teams eight franchise teams uh, uh, I think we need slightly more opportunities for professional cricket um, but that also depends on because we come from a system where there's 12 there used to be 12 provinces and then you half it into six, and then each of the you know each of the areas have two like Poland and Newlands and uh, Titans have Supersport Park and uh, uh, Willemore Park Benoni. So, but to kind of have eight professional teams, I mean four, uh, six of the well, four of the teams are going to miss out for for the stadium. So that, right. that then that becomes. That becomes a political issue. Who do you give the other two uh, franchise teams to? Do you give it to Border and to and to and to Borland? But then, like Kimberley is going to be upset, Easterns is going to be upset, the Northwest is going to be upset. Like it's such a balancing act. We've been trying to fight this particular story for the last um, since I since I started. We've been thinking about how, how we can uh, streamline the structure. Um, how we can make it financially viable. Uh, there will be some changes as a force change with regards to South Africa, Cricket South Africa's uh, financial position. So there'll be, 
I think 10% less cricket next year. Um, instead of 10 four-day games, I think there'll be eight four-day games. Instead of uh, a double round T20 comp, there's one round T20 comp, but then there's two extra T20 teams. So, like, there's a few different things. Um, I think my potentially offering a way back for the callback players to come and play is potentially maybe not for the whole season, maybe for different competitions. So if, if you're a stronger four-day player, you could sign a five-game deal. Or if you're a stronger white ball player, you could sign a 50-over deal or a T20 deal to kind of get those players back into the system. Um, I think that might be a way uh, to strengthen the game. Uh, some people might argue that you're taking away opportunities from some of the younger guys to gain experience. But I've, I'm definitely of the opinion that you need some senior players to lead. You, you need player-to-player learning. That's where the, the learning takes place. The coach can know everything, but like if you don't have the, your mate on the side of the field or while you're batting, in the heat of battle, kind of going through the, going through the scenarios and learning the game that way, the learning is going to take a bit slower uh, in some cases, not in all cases. So player-to-player learning is quite massive in my opinion. So I would encourage them to have senior players come back into the system on some way, shape or form. Um, allow the franchises to pay the players, the callback players coming back. Because technically it's the, it's South Africa is their home and I'm sure they would love to play for a couple of months of the year mm. um, out of the off-season instead of just chilling or resting up. Um Especially if you're young, you know, especially if you're young. Yeah. Um, some of those things, I mean, it's, it's all linked to finances. And I suppose the next little bit is going to be tough because of the coronavirus and broadcast rights. And yeah, that's going to be the, the, a tough way to kind of to kind of navigate. Tough, a, a tough period to navigate exactly how you're going to do the structure. Right. Well, yeah, as you say, it's, it's, going, to be, it's going to be tricky. I mean, the whole world is... Is impacted, and, and as much as cricket likes to pretend it exists in a bubble, it, it, it definitely doesn't. But um, Fudge, thank you so much. I, I really we, we, we've been chatting for almost an hour and a half now. I, 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 yeah, I so appreciate your time. And listen, you're uh, you're a joy in, in domestic cricket in South Africa. And once normality resumes, we look forward to seeing you up in Durham, and, and hopefully we can we can link up for a beer when you get over here. Cheers, man. That's our show. Thanks for sticking around if you made it here. If you have, I'll take it that you enjoyed it. So please do share the love on social media. The more folks who listen, the more we're able to do. Big love again for made <clears throat> Big love again for Raider Media. You can find them and me on social media. And while you're there, why don't you give the show a follow on Twitter at short underscore fine underscore legs. Till next time.